TV show just goes around and shows these elaborate lifestyles of celebrities, and it's not condemning them. It's saying, like, you can have this right. too, right? You can achieve this, and this is what you want to have. Are you thinking MTV's Cribs? I mean, it was very similar to that. Oh, definitely. I can, I can hear that guy's voice right now. <laughs> Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Like, that, I can hear it. Welcome to History of the Present, a discussion on evangelicalism and the making of modern America. Hosted by Dr. Hunter Hampton, Kendall McDonald, and myself, Blake Russell. We've reached the age of evangelicalism. A presidential race begins to reshape Americans' perspective and prosperity gospel becomes mainstream. Okay, so here we are. We have come to the payoff. Yeah. These next two episodes are going to be about evangelicalism, which is where we started this whole thing. I just needed to say it like that. I hadn't said that in a while. I haven't said that in a while. But this is, seriously, we're, the uncomfortableness of this is that we are now squarely in all of our, most of our lifetimes. Shout out to you college kids that are still waiting for your moment, but we're going to be squarely. <laughs> we'll get them. Yeah. We're, we're going to get them next get episode. But here we are. Here we are. We're, we're right here in the age of evangelicalism. Yeah, and setting that up, and, you know, it's important to understand the cultural shift, and we're going we're gonna to talk a lot about culture uh, and the cultural shift that happens in the 70s and 80s, coming out of the, the 1960s that we kind of covered in episode 8 uh, and episode 9, because there was a lot of change in the air, specifically in the 1960s. The 1960s are held up as this moment of change and people were taking big swings for change mm-hmm. the 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 freedom of speech movement the women's rights movement the civil rights movement all of these like massive like systemic change like not small individuals like we need to reshape so much of how our country functions and there were some successes there uh but you know on a whole uh, did not accomplish or achieve all, all curing all of the problems of our society, right? right? We still had issues coming out of that. And I think understanding the 60s, again, as this kind of time for some people, a lot of people have like hoped and optimism um, of change really comes to a screeching halt uh, in the late 1960s uh, and early 1970s. In 1968, you have kind of the end of the civil rights movement in a way with the assassination and murder of Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Um, followed by kind of another, just like a string of public uh, assassinations and murders uh, in 1968. The Tet Offensive is also Yeah, there. it was a rough year. It's a really bad year. Um, and then as the 70s go along, this political crisis goes. In 1971, you have the Pentagon Papers that are leaked about the U.S. involvement in Vietnam and shows that this is the United States' involvement there is not what politicians have been right. saying and that, uh, in fact, the government has been actively lying to its people. And I think that's a real moment of... <clears throat> disenchantment for an entire generation of people that for so long, especially, you know, coming out of the forties, fifties and sixties, people just believed that the government and their politicians were looking to do good. And all of a sudden you see that these people that you believed in are intentionally lying to you, um, cost our country a whole lot. The next year you have the Watergate break-ins, uh, by these associates of Richard Nixon in 1974, we have uh, Nixon resign in 1975, um, Saigon falls. And so it is this really just kind of massive decline in the 1970s politically. Uh, on the other side, you also have just a real economic downturn in the 70s. Manufacturing uh, begins to decline on a major level uh, as 
exporting of manufacturing takes place. You have a massive oil embargo mm-hmm. uh, that takes place, and famously something again, kind of a reference to our current moment now stagflation right but this massive inflation that's hitting people so economically people are struggling uh politically people don't believe that the system is there and you know i have a on this lecture slide that i give uh it's someone walking through the streets of new york city which is just a really it's Times square but it's not Times square now where it's like oh glitz and glam it's like broken burnout like nasty Times square and like this person's wearing a placard on their front that just says the american dream is dead and it's a powerful image because i think that taps into what a lot of people kind of started to believe in the 1970s because as much as the 60s were trying to again change the outside world when that becomes apparent that that's not going to happen americans kind of turn inward and the 70s are kind of seen as a decade of doing that creating two different cultures if you can't change the outside you're going to change yourself which leads to what historians have kind of labeled a culture of cynicism so like a really cynical look Mm -hmm. at the world but then also a culture of narcissism uh so again both of those are kind of internal changes that happen and this manifests itself interestingly in in popular culture. Uh, so I'm going to listen things. We don't recommend you to watch these, right? Not endorsed by the Fredonia Hill Podcast Network. But these are things that were popular and important to the culture at the time. Yeah, and I think it's interesting. I think pop. I lo- I love studying popular culture because the people just view it as important, right? Mm-hmm. Like it, it comes out there and it succeeds because it kind of hits a nerve that people want, right? People go yeah. to the movie theaters to but, buy tickets but for But why did it hit that nerve? Exactly. And that's what looking back on it, mm-hmm. looking at popular culture kind of gives us insight into that. And so one of the things that you see is all of a sudden uh, popular films in the 70s in this cultural of cynicism have the rise of the anti-hero. So films like Taxi Driver or The Godfather, where the quote-unquote hero of the film is not a good person, mm-hmm. right? They are they are bad people by judging them. But as you're watching this film, you find yourself rooting for these people that are, if you just kind of like stripped it down and looked at it, you're like, that's not mm-hmm. great. Yeah. Um, Another one that, again, not endorsing, but I think it shows kind of the cynical view of the world, uh, a children's film that came out in the 1970s, The Bad News Bears. <laughs> again, was advertised as a, ch- a children's movie, and I'll just say yeah, it is it's not, not a that. children's movie. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really negative look on the American family, on American kids, um, and these kids are horrible right, and misbehave, and you compare that to the, again, like we talked about in the 50s and 60s of leave it to beaver culture, yeah. right, of this idealistic suburban family. This is showing, again, like this incredibly cynical look at what the American family is, and I think comparing those two things, the popularity of leave it to beaver to the bad news bears, I think gives insight into the different cultural perception there. Uh, and Another cynical look is like you have the rise of punk music come out in the mm-hmm. 70s that's intentionally ugly, right? It, it's not pretty, and that's the point. Yeah. Uh, they don't, it's not supposed to be uh, pretty at all. And so if that's kind of one part of this kind of turning inward of 70s culture. The second is this culture of narcissism that if I can't change the outside world, well, maybe I can make myself... A better person, uh, and you see this, I think, in some best-selling books that appear. Uh, one is the book Jonathan Livingston Siegel. Have either of y'all read Jonathan Livingston Siegel? Nope. Sometimes he had an English teacher in high school that assigned it, but uh, I think it's one of the things I, I love going into people's houses and looking and seeing what books they have on their shelves. I think it's fascinating. I've already done that yeah, to Blake yeah. here. Uh, I'll there, give you some all decorations. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but you'd be surprised at the number of bookshelves that for people that were growing up in the 70s. Uh, you'd see Jonathan Livingston Siegel. But it's a story, kind of a picture book of a seagull named 
Jonathan, that flies around and kind of gets disenchanted with living the normal life of a seagull, and he wants to swoop and swirl and kind of find himself and his identity in not being just your everyday average seagull. And so it's this book, again, told through the story of a seagull, of like this search for authenticity. Mm. You're just like, that just sounds, I I wish I could show you the faces that I'm getting right now as I'm explaining (laughs) this to Blake and Kendall. Uh, This is like, that just sounds weird, Yeah, right? That's kind of your reaction? No, it sounds like today. Well, we'll get to that. That's foreshadowing. Uh, But again, becomes a best-selling book because people want that, right? That people, people buy copies of this book so one of the things that just explodes is Thomas's Harris's book, I'm Okay, You're Okay, where he encourages his readers to go through what he calls transactional analysis, where you analyze yourself uh, through these different stages of you seeing yourself as I'm not okay, but you're okay, I'm okay, but you're not okay, hmm. I'm not okay, and you're not okay. But then hopefully the goal, right, through this self-help process is that you are okay with both yourself and with others. Um, And again, sells millions of copies. New York Times bestseller, people can't get enough of it. Another interesting one uh, that comes about is Jim Fix's book, The Complete Book of Running. And something that, uh, again, just... I think reshaped our world in ways that we didn't really think about. But before the 1970s, people didn't really exercise that much um, and definitely did not jog. People did not go and run for exercise. But in the 1970s, (laughs) Jim Fix's book... uh, I think Kendall's over here laughing at me because that's probably my mantra in life is don't run unless somebody's chasing you. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> maybe we should get you a copy of Jim yeah, Fix's maybe, let's book. Yeah, get that book. Uh, but for Fix, running running is not just exercise. It is about this kind of holistic cure. He talks about himself being overweight and smoking multiple packs of cigarettes a day. All of a sudden, he starts running a couple of miles every day, and it is this cure-all. And so Fix is interesting because he has this self-help blended in with this kind of emphasis on physical appearance uh, that, that again, mm-hmm. starts to take off, but feeds this kind of culture of narcissism. And so if, if we've got kind of this political uh, downturn, this kind of cultural output of, of cynicism and narcissism, it has a really big impact on religion and people in American religion in the 1970s in some really interesting ways. So one of the most interesting and I think impactful uh, transitions that we see in 70s Christianity is the rise of the Jesus people, which we see kind of this this hanging on to 1960s hippie culture, Mm -hmm. meeting uh, this kind of need for a new cultural moment in the 1970s. And so the Jesus people come about really as just kind of a, a burnout and rejection of hippie culture and the, the, the drugs that was kind of popularized as use turns into abuse mm-hmm. uh, and a lot of the struggles there uh, to where you see in the 1970s, it becomes enough of a movement that like multiple covers of Time magazine are dedicated uh, to studying the Jesus people and uh, what's going on. And they, you know, reject kind of the the stereotype of what a good all-American Southern Baptist Christian would look like, right? They've yeah. got long hair, tie-dye, playing guitars. Sounds like a bunch of worship leaders. Yeah. <laughs> well, we'll get to that again. Great <laughs> foreshadowing. Uh, but, but don't fit that traditional, again, kind of look or... Uh, norm, um, and they embrace this really charismatic branch of Christianity and on the West Coast um, eventually create kind of the vineyard movement Mm -hmm. uh, and appeal to this younger generation of uh, Americans that are living in this world and not kind of resonating with the church. And kind of the pinnacle, one of the pinnacles of the Jesus People movement actually took place at the Cotton Bowl in Dallas in 1972 uh, at this event put on by Campus Crusade called Explo 72. And it was 
meant to be this kind of massive rally of high school and college students uh, to come to worship, to pray, uh, to hear teachers and music. And uh, it was advertised as a Christian Woodstock. And again, it's important because it worked in a way. They got 80,000 uh, again, young people, mostly from high school and college, to show up for this event. I'd love to hear from you, by the way, if you happen to be at Expo 72. Um, I thought you asking us, I was like, a little before my no, time. No, but anybody, <laughs> any listeners out there, I'd love to I'd love to hear about your yeah. experience. Um, it's kind of a local, somewhat local. So, yeah, yeah, close enough. We've got plenty of Dallas people here. Uh, but in this moment, you see a lot of these strands from earlier decades coming together, but also creating something kind of new and unique. So Billy Graham was there uh, and gave a speech and again chose kind of his agility uh, to do this. Graham himself at this moment had kind of grown out his sideburns mm. and let his hair get a little Got the longer. 70s look. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, Johnny Cash performed uh, and a lot of early kind of contemporary Christian musicians uh, were on stage, uh, and they also uh, read a letter uh, written by Richard Nixon to the crowd. And so in this moment, you see the appeal for these younger people to this Jesus people type um, movement of, of kind of rejecting the past and trying to do something new. Another thing that we see in 1970s Christian culture is a real influence of that self-help culture. And we see uh, evangelicals latch on to that lock, stock, and barrel. Um, And one of the most popular writers at the time was a woman named Ruth Carter Stapleton, uh, who's actually the sister of Jimmy Carter. uh, And she wrote uh, a book called The Gift of Inner Healing. And she takes Tom Harris's book, The uh, I'm okay, you're okay, mm-hmm. and just kind of makes it Christian. So uh, Harris and and Stapleton kind of both describe your brain as a VHS tape. Mm. Uh, all our younger listeners can come and ask us what a VHS tape is. But that uh, everything is recorded in your brain, and to do this transactional analysis, you go back and like hit rewind to relive these past events that have shaped you. And what Stapleton does is that as you get to these conflict moments of these moments that have shaped your life potentially in a negative way, that Jesus would appear in that moment and like walk you through that difficult concept. And so in her, again, self-help world, you, you have that with a Christian flair, right? Instead of you helping yourself, you are helping yourself, but like Jesus is also there to kind of make you a better person, a higher functioning person in society. And she becomes incredibly popular. She she converts uh, a lot of celebrities uh, and is invited on all sorts of popular TV shows and, and really shows this bleeding out uh, of self-help culture meeting Christianity into the wider world. The last thing that we see can kind of fit probably more with the culture of cynicism is this real rise of apocalypticism within evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. I'm glad I That was great. That. Thank you. Yeah. I, was, I was reading this and I was like, there's no way. No Nailed way. them both. Two isms in one yeah. sentence. Wow. Uh, but Hal Lindsey uh, was a writer who published a book in 1970 called Late Great Planet Earth. And it's a small little book, uh, maybe 150 pages, um, incredibly readable. But it takes the book of Revelation and all the books, other Old Testament books of prophecy, and applies them to 1970s America and to the mm. world and trying to interpret the end of times. And so he focuses on putting these current events in place. And if you look at it, obviously he kind of substitutes out like God's people for America in there. Uh, But, you know, he has all of these great graphs and maps of how invasions are going to happen and, you know, reading of times and dates. And essentially when you come to the end of it, you realize that the end is nigh. Mm -hmm. And by nigh, we mean like 
in a couple of years. And yeah. uh, Lindsay was different from some of the earlier uh, kind of people that we talked about predicting uh, the end times. Um, he would never put a specific date on it, but many times mentioned that the upcoming 80s would be uh, the last era and that we were kind of here at uh, the very end. Uh, and Lindsay's book uh, goes bonkers. Bestseller, people can't buy it gets on the New York Times bestseller list, um, actually turns into multiple films and TV shows. One of them uh, is narrated by Orson Welles. I think it gives you a really good flavor, uh, the trailer for the Orson Welles film on how this kind of apocalypticism and faith, but also the cynical view of the world really all come together. Man is faced by unprecedented perils that threaten to send him crashing into the dark abyss of silence known as extinction. Man stands on the brink of destruction, but could it be that man's ultimate fate has been known for over 2,000 years? This was a false prophet some 2,000, 3,000 years ago. Why did they stone him? Then as now, man believed himself too sophisticated for prophecies. But now, prophetic patterns exist that cannot be ignored, cannot be forgotten. The late great planet Earth, featuring Orson Welles. The incredible best-selling book by Hal Lindsey is now a motion picture that dares to explore the terrifying meanings of the ancient prophecies. Dares to face the chain of events predicting the end of our planet. I'm speaking to you today from the last battlefield on planet Earth. It's out here that the last stages of history as we know it will be decided. Let all the men of the war draw near. Let them come up. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. When the book of Revelation warned that 200 million men would decide the fate of our planet, is it only coincidence that Red China today has an army exactly that size? Prophecies speak of the coming of an Antichrist. Is he among us already? Many people think that because this man's called the Antichrist that he'll appear to be evil. But Satan's no fool. Is the computer his weapon? What is the prophetic clue to his identity? Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast. For the number is that of a man. And the number is 666. The increasing frequency of earthquakes and floods, dramatic changes in weather patterns, all predicted centuries ago. Scientists are now warning us of terrible dangers from outer space in 1982. In that year, Jupiter and all the other planets will be aligned on the same side of the sun. The late great planet Earth. It will take your mind further than it has ever dared to before. Is it all coincidence? Or has the final countdown begun? Is our planet truly in mortal peril. Have 70% of the key predictions fallen into place already? Whether it's five minutes to midnight or whether it's 10 minutes to midnight is debatable. What is it that gives us the idea that our time on Earth is infinite and without end. See the late great planet Earth featuring Orson Welles. It may change your life forever. Is our planet truly in mortal peril? Hal Lindsey, author of an incredible best-selling book called The Late Great Planet Earth featuring Orson Welles is now a film that may change your life forever. As the forces of East and West move into the Middle East, the stage will be set for the final battle of history, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Armageddon. It's later than most people think. And so for for that, for the Lindsay's late, thing, and you hear Orson Welles and his incredible voice talking about that, uh, as that was shown on TV, over 17 million people tuned in to watch wow. uh, that interpretation of how Lindsay's uh, book and which again would have sold more copies and so you can see that this is something that now is no longer just reaching kind of specific only Christian culture but 
the, yeah, the, the line the between Christian culture mm-hmm. and mainstream American culture are uh, starting to uh, blur and bend. And uh, a lot of that lays uh, a lot of the foundation for uh, kind of future cultural shifts that we're going to see in our final episode. But an interesting pivot point comes in the 1980s, for, for as kind of unique as the 70s were compared to the 60s, the 80s were distinct from the 1970s. And we, we see that really in uh, the political election and campaign of Jimmy Carter versus Ronald Reagan. I think it shows these, these two very different views um, there, and also an important moment for American evangelicals when it comes to politics. So Jimmy Carter was the incumbent. He was the president um, at the time in the 70s and was an incredibly dedicated Christian, Southern Baptist through and through, was a Sunday school teacher mm-hmm. almost uh, his entire life, and arguably the most Christian president that our country has ever had. Uh, but becomes incredibly unpopular uh, for a whole host of reasons by the end of his first term. Uh, One was that he was seen as soft on communism. He he really didn't want to be a hardliner there. He thought that trying to thaw relationships with the Soviet Union were going to, to help. He also struggled from the Iranian hostage crisis where uh, you have these U.S. embassy workers in Iran mm-hmm. that are taken hostage. Um, he tries to get them freed, and in that effort, fails. And so, the United States looks weak, and Carter yeah. looks weak um, there. And the the kind of what I see is like one of the final nails in in Jimmy Carter's political coffin was this speech that he gave in July of 1979 called his crisis of confidence speech. And it it really is a good kind of capsule for how 1970s America viewed itself because as soon as he gave this speech, it had a real positive uptick. In a nation that was proud of hard work, strong families, close-knit communities, and our faith in God, too many of us now tend to worship self-indulgence and consumption. Human identity is no longer defined by what one does, but by what one owns. But we've discovered that owning things and consuming things does not satisfy our longing for meaning. We've learned that piling up material goods cannot fill the emptiness of lives which have no confidence or purpose. The symptoms of this crisis of the American spirit are all around us. For the first time in the history of our country, a majority of our people believe that the next five years will be worse than the past five years. Two-thirds of our people do not even vote. The productivity of American workers is actually dropping. And the willingness of Americans to save for the future has fallen below that of all other people in the Western world. As you know, there is a growing disrespect for government and for churches and for schools, the news media, and other institutions. This is not a message of happiness or reassurance, but it is the truth, and it is a warning. Because he comes out, and he really just calls out the American people. He says that we are selfish, that we are spending too much money, that we need to save, and that we as individual people need to take responsibility, like you need to take responsibility for your actions, and America is undergoing this crisis of confidence and that we no longer believe in ourselves and we need to return 
to our values and that is on you hmm. America to go and do that and it's a it's a really uh, intense speech yeah. uh, and it's not happy it's not warm uh, and again initially people kind of see it and it's kind of like getting up he, he comes across as kind of like an angry principal and kind of like in those moments sometimes you're just like yeah you know what like we don't need you. <laughs> maybe there is. Well, no, the people at first were just like, maybe we do need oh, to yeah. change. Maybe we, that, that was a hard, some little hard love, but we need to, to go forward. Um, the problem is that immediately after that, Ronald Reagan steps into the ring. Gotcha. Yeah. And just does a complete 180 and turns Carter's message kind of encapsulated in that speech really on its head. You know, someone once said that the difference between an American and any other kind of person is that an American lives in anticipation of the future because he knows it'll be a great place. Other people fear the future as just a repetition of past failures. Well, there's a lot of truth in that. If there's one thing we're sure of, it is that history need not be relived, that nothing is impossible, and that man is capable of improving his circumstances beyond what we're told is fact. Now, there are those in our land today, however, who would have us believe that the United States, like other great civilizations of the past, has reached the zenith of its power, that we're weak and fearful, reduced to bickering with each other, and no longer possessed of the will to cope with our problems. Much of this talk has come from leaders who claim that our problems are too difficult to handle. We're supposed to meekly accept their failures as the most which can humanly be done. They tell us we must learn to live with less and teach our children that their lives will be less full and prosperous than ours have been. That the America of the coming years will be a place where, because of our past excesses, it will be impossible to dream and make those dreams come true. I don't believe that. And I don't believe you do either. That's why I'm seeking the presidency. I cannot and will not stand by and see this great country destroy itself. Our leaders attempt to blame their failures on circumstances beyond their control, on false estimates by unknown, unidentifiable experts who rewrite modern history in an attempt to convince us our high standard of living, the result of thrift and hard work, is somehow selfish extravagance which we must renounce as we join in sharing scarcity. I don't agree that our nation must resign itself to inevitable decline, yielding its proud position to other hands. I am totally unwilling to see this country fail in its obligation to itself and to the other free peoples of the world. The crisis we face is not the result of any failure of the American spirit. It's a failure of our leaders to establish rational goals and give our people something to order their lives by. If I'm elected, I shall regard my election as proof that the people of the United States have decided to set a new agenda and have recognized that the human spirit thrives best when goals are set and progress can be measured in their achievement. So when Ronald Reagan announces his presidency, he, he turns Carter's words against him, and it's exactly what the American people want to hear so on the economy carter says it's your fault ronald reagan says no 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 friends it is the government's fault and people are just like nobody wants to take responsibility yeah, that sounds way better <laughs> praise be right yeah. like oh it's someone else's fault absolutely and by the way i'm 100 in that i'd love i would love to be in that uh he also comes out and is incredibly outspoken against uh, the Soviet Union and is a radical anti-communist, again, in comparison to Carter. He comes out and refers to the Soviet Union as the evil empire um, and rejects those policies and says that we don't need to kind of soften up relations with the Soviet Union. We actually need to kind of roll back and go on the offensive there. Uh, the third thing is that he says and, and gives voice to a lot of the social conservatism that was there. So says that he wants to ban abortion uh, and roll back uh, Roe versus Wade, uh, that he wants to legalize prayer in school. Um, and he isn't able to accomplish all this and doesn't 
try the hardest necessarily to do it, but it's symbolically playing yeah. to these social conservative needs um, really mobilizes um, Christians uh, to vote for him. And so in that in that moment, in that kind of political campaign, you see this pivot that creates a distinct American culture that is radically different from what we talked about earlier in the 1970s. In the 1980s, you have this group, and they're called the Reagan Generation. It's this group of kind of young people that would have been in their 20s and 30s uh, in uh, the early 80s that rejected kind of the progressive ideas of their parents or that previous generation. That They looked at the 60s not as a time of freedom, but as something that needed to be kind of put Kicked, back yeah. into its box. Um, you also see them really cash in on Reagan's words of, you know, it's not the government or it's not your fault. Uh, it's everyone else's and you, it is okay to spend because Carter's big thing was Let's don't save. spend, yeah. don't buy. And the eighties are the opposite of that. This conspicuous consumption of defining yourself by what you buy as, is an all time high, uh, through TV shows like the lifestyles of the rich and famous. That's tagline is like, champagne dreams and caviar wishes Joe mm. just goes around and shows these elaborate lifestyles mm -hmm. of celebrities and it's not condemning them it's saying like you can have this right. too right you can achieve this and this is what you want to have you, are you thinking MTV's Cribs? I mean, it was very similar to that. Oh, definitely. I can, I can hear that guy's voice right now. <laughs> Lifestyles of the rich and famous. Like, that, I can hear it. Yeah. It, no, it's a total yeah. precursor uh, to Cribs, which we all spent too many summers watching <laughs> Not me. on MTV. Come on. Not Blake. No. We can cut that. <laughs> but you also see pop culture kind of mimic a lot of... Uh, Kind of Reagan's ideas and policies, the the movie Ghostbusters, the first Ghostbusters, uh, a lot of people have cited that as a real political action moment or an awakening moment for them. Because in Ghostbusters, do y'all happen to remember who the bad guy is? Ooh, I, I don't, putting us on the spot. No, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, oh, is yeah. the bad guy, and so. You've got the government is coming in and trying to suppress these guys who are the good guys who are trying to save the world. Mm. Uh, and so you have them kind of fighting against the uh, big government, which I know is, it sounds funny, yeah. but like there are people who actually side Ghostbusters is like a real political yeah, awakening yeah. moment for them. I, I, I see that now. And I think you can also see it in... 80s fashion if you if you look at 80s fashion uh and think about you know princess diana was an incredibly popular figure mm -hmm. uh denise richards their their fashion was really loud bright bright colors lots of patterns mm -hmm. really loud prints i have this one picture it's like just kind of like ruffles on ruffles on ruffles so it's very loud and out there but it's also conservative so coverage like and modest so like you know necklines are really high hmm. uh and dress links uh for the most part are incredibly long and so you see fashion again kind of mimic this kind of cultural moment of the 1980s except for men's shorts they, they were not conservative <laughs> and there we have the different gender norms that's right you've got burt reynolds quite short quite tight <laughs> So in all of that, for, for all these kind of cultural and political movements, we see American evangelicalism uh, play a major role in the 1980s. Uh, and again, shifting more and more into the American mainstream, but also pulling the American mainstream into alignment uh, with American evangelicalism. And one of the things that we see is... Uh, the political activation of evangelicals. In 1979, uh, Jerry Falwell created the moral majority uh, that took a lead in fighting uh, these things. He puts a name on this group that wanted to, in his words, wage war on sin. So he said that... So he said that evangelicals should get together and vote, again, as a kind of more cohesive group yeah. to elect pro-life, pro-family, pro-American candidates. And in that, evangelicals, 
evangelicals were at the front, but it was able to bring together other constituents of Latter-day Saints, uh, Jewish Americans, Catholics, to kind of all agreed on these, but evangelicals really took the four. And I think it's an interesting moment reflecting on the Carter and, and Reagan pivot point. And it really is, I think, a pivot point uh, for Americans. I think it's a pivot point for culture, but I think it's also a pivot point for evangelicals in that historians agree that this is when evangelicals become a voting block. And it becomes a moment where politicians and political parties and news stories all of a sudden start talking about the evangelicals Mm -hmm. as someone that has political sway. And I always find it interesting that evangelicals in, in, in that moment in the election of Ronald Reagan are voting out Jimmy Carter. Right. Yeah. Right, the the guy who was the Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher, but it's because he didn't speak to a lot of um, their kind of desires in the same way that Reagan did. And Reagan was spiritual um, and and more religious than not. I think is probably a fair way to yeah. describe him. But he's not leading. He wasn't leading Sunday schools. Right. Right. Um, but I, I, the irony of that moment, I think, has always just um, struck me. But again, people at that time, it worked hand in hand. And one of the key figures that I think kind of illustrates this change in the 1980s for evangelicals um, is the character of James Dobson and his organization Focus on the Family. Uh, Dobson was actually born nearby Shreveport, Louisiana uh, in 1936. Um, moves out to Pasadena, California, uh, graduates from Pasadena College, ends up going to the University of Southern California and gets his PhD in psychology. And that's important because he embodies this new type of evangelical that people wanted where he is both you know, Southern and has kind of those Southern evangelical sensibilities, but he is also an authority, right? Mm-hmm. He has a PhD uh, from USC to do that. And he wrote a book in 1970, his first kind of best-selling book uh, that was called Dare to Discipline that talks about kind of this need to put American culture kind of back together. And it's very much kind of in this new self-help vein. He offers practical self-help advice to parents about really how to combat the evils of the 1960s. So he talks about things like juvenile delinquency, drug use, alcohol abuse, uh, and gives parents these strategies to um, deal with them and does them in this kind of folksy, storytelling, practical mm-hmm. way that that evangelicals really resonate with. And, and through the popularity of that book, um, he begins to become an authority. Uh, And by the end of the decade, 1977, he decides to create a radio show. It's called Let's Get Acquainted to reach a broader audience um, that kind of leads to, again, him becoming more of a national voice and leader. Uh, And after the combination of the book and the radio show, he realizes that he needs to create an organization, Focus on the Family, that does that, right? gives American Christians this ability to kind of blend this desire to mix their faith with also kind of fighting against this kind of cultural forces that they see out there uh, and focus on the family is the way to do that. And as as, and as Dobson uh, kind of has this success with people, he also realizes that he has an advocate in the White House in Ronald Reagan uh, and quickly kind of saddles up to power there uh, and that Reagan creates what's called the White House, Conf- White House Conferences on Family in August of 1980, and Dobson is appointed uh, to be the leader of that. And so Dobson becomes this kind of stand-in voice and advocate for American evangelicals to the White House, right, in the White House. And mm-hmm. so no longer is it trying to, again, kind of keep faith outside of that. Now it's more of a kind of an active plan, right? We need to actively engage in these political decisions and shape American politics, shape American policies towards 
what uh, these evangelical desires are. And by the end of the 80s, Dobson was, I would argue, probably the leader of the Christian right, focused on the family, you know, staff was over 450 people. He had a million subscribers to his magazines. They had their own book publishing uh, division, movie productions, uh, and a worldwide audience for his radio show. And so in that, and I think that the popularity and success of James Dobson speaks to the desires of American evangelicals Mm -hmm. to do this, right? They, They wanted to engage in this way and Dobson is there to provide them guidance and a source for how they should think about these things how should they engage with culture and really also how should they engage and shape politics which is an interesting moment uh, and kind of pivot for American evangelicals where they were not seen as a political force in that way up until Dobson and really his kind of teaming up with Ronald Reagan you remember your first interaction with Dobson? I mean, we're I, we're, hit, we're hitting our childhood. Yeah, pretty I mean, I, I remember yes, a lot of reference to him, like when I was in high school. You know, I think in in some of the high school Sunday school classes, we talked about huh. maybe use some of his curriculum and things like that. I mean, my parents were be, really I think, beginning to take their faith seriously at that time. Yeah, um, and so he was super formational as they started to ask, I think, some of the harder questions about, like, what does my faith actually look like as I, as I live it out, mm-hmm. and, you know? And, uh, and I remember, I think I was, I was, I think I was when I was turning 12 or 13, it was one, but it was this kind of this, uh, rite of passage thing that my dad did with me. One of the, the book I had to read that was the initiation kind of of this, of this process was a uh, James Dobson preparing for adolescence. Mm. Uh, I think is what it was called, but, um, it was a book written for teenagers about, uh, or, or I guess people on the cusp of, of being teenagers about what adolescence was like. But anyway, it was a James Dobson book. And um, so he he was really influential in my uh, childhood and my parents, like just even figuring out what parenting looks like. And um, so. I'll tell you what mine was. Yeah. McGee and Me. Oh, yeah. Did y'all watch McGee and Me? Yeah, yeah. I didn't think about that. Oh, yeah. McGee and Me is, is great. It's uh, You can find them. They're, all, they're actually all on YouTube. I've gone back and watched most of them. Uh, <laughs> but it's this story of kind of this idyllic evangelical suburban family living in the 1980s. And this son has this kind of cartoon friend, McGee, that mm-hmm. uh, would pop up and help them. It was really fancy graphic work. Back, back the then time. it really was. Yeah, yeah the live action yeah. with a cartoon. Uh, and it would kind of go through some sort of familial conflict. Mm-hmm. And there was a Bible story that was weaved in. And then at the end of this episode, the family kind of comes back together. But I think, you know, you reading this book and me watching McGee and me, um, just speaks to just like the widespread influence yeah, of huge. Dobson mm-hmm. and focus on the family. And eventually, you know, their campus in uh, Colorado Springs has a massive influence and, and it really becomes in a way kind of a, a, a pilgrimage site for people to go. Uh, so as much as Dobson embodies this kind of one part of, of 80s evangelicalism and that was incredibly powerful and potent with focus on the family and really this kind of new political engagement there, uh, another tide that we see of kind of equal power and influence is kind of tapping into that conspicuous consumption side of 1980s culture uh, in the real kind of starting boom of the prosperity gospel. Uh, really in the in the figure of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. Uh, and Jim Baker definitely took a lot of his uh, lessons from people like Oral Roberts in those previous generations um, of abundant life evangelists. But the thing that made Baker uh, unique was uh, his creativity and his use of TV. Uh, TV, we talked about TV before with Roberts and Graham, and they were impactful and people watched them, but they were sermons, right? You would watch Mm -hmm. them kind of give it up and and give their sermons. What Baker wanted to do and what he did successfully was give people entertainment in Christian form. And so he took kind of like a Johnny, he did take a Johnny Carson approach to a Christian audience. So what what would it look like to have this kind of night show 
you know, Tonight Show approach, and yeah. but just with Christian hosts and kind of a Christian audience. And as he does this, he creates the show PTL, which if you ask them, they kind of actually gave you a lot of different answers of what PTL stood for, but most people believed that it was for praise the Lord. Uh, but in these shows, he would he would stand up and do the same stuff, kind of yeah. opening monologue where everyone uh, would be happy but uh, and talk, and he would kind of tell jokes, and he and Tammy Faye would banter. Um, but the show, again, had a huge impact, and they would bring in tons of hosts or tons of different uh, audience members, and I think ranging from Colonel Sanders to Little Richard – to I mean, it's wild. George Foreman, yeah. Uh, Pat Boone was a frequent guest. And so in all of this, uh, you see their kind of cultural reach there. But they were really a groundbreaking organization, and people really found it popular. And I think this clip gives you a sense and a good flavor of how much kind of fun, upbeat energy Jim and Tammy brought to people to both entertain them, but again, through this the Christian PTO medium. Television Network presents... And so in Baker uh, and this group uh, and PTL were really groundbreaking and, and really actually ahead of the times and a lot of things, specifically technologically, they create a satellite network uh, for their TV in 1978 and actually beat ESPN and a lot of other organizations mm. uh, to be able to broadcast uh, this show, not just across the country, but across the world. And so... Uh, the ability to do that, again, expanded their reach. And what we see is a common kind of thread in this is just this optimism, right? One of the major themes of the show is that everything is just going to be okay. And that the world, you know, kind of comparing it to the fears of Hal Lindsey, you don't get that with Jim and Tammy, right? Everything is good. Everything is kind of shiny and happy, and that gets to the second theme that Jim and Tammy really tapped into was this idea of the abundant life, right? That that God wanted to bless you financially, and they became the embodiment of that. They became and truly lived a Christian lifestyles of the rich and famous. And a lot of they would have these specialty episodes uh, where they would show you around their you know, 10,000 square foot home or their condos in Palm Springs. They also had a home in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. They would drive uh, cars like the Rolls Royce and then showed this incredibly extravagant lifestyle that I think you could very easily just be like, oh, should a ministry have this, right? Like, mm-hmm. is this the best use of finances? But for them, it wasn't... It wasn't a religious question or conflict. It supported their beliefs, right? If you believe that God is going to bless those that he wants financially, then they are just living into that. And and they lived into it a lot. In the three years from 1984 to 1987, the compensation for the Bakers alone was $4.7 million. Wow. Uh, and so they made a lot of uh, money through that process uh and on top of that the abundant life is financial but it's also like for tapping into that kind of health and Mm -hmm. self-help mentality they would have guests come on uh that would talk about their physical fitness uh and talk about the need for uh being on a diet, Jim and Tammy would often go on diets together and kind of like a precursor to Oprah in a way, right? Where they would encourage people to go and do this. And so through PTL and through this show, their their reach just continues to expand. And 
it reaches kind of its pinnacle, but also its decline in Heritage USA, which is a Christian, it's a 2,300 acre Christian theme park, kind of nice. right on the North Bible Land, South Carolina border. Oh yeah, did either of y'all happen to go to Heritage no. USA? No, I didn't either. I we do. I feel like we just missed it, but yeah, um, it was over six million people uh, went and visited Heritage USA in 1986 making it third most popular vacation spot behind Disneyland and Disney World. So again, talking about like, how does this happen uh, and why is it important? That's why, right? Is you could go and in this kind of Christian atmosphere, you could ride rides, you could swim in the pools, you could also answer phone calls for fundraising, uh, go to a marriage conference, learn how to eat better from dietitians. So all of the, all the message that they preached kind of was housed in this one place. But uh, for Baker, uh, the money, the appeal of money has uh, helped bring him down. And he developed this strategy of instead of raising money and spending it on Project A, he would raise money for Project A, and then not finish it. And so he'd start raising money for project B to pay for project A and then project A would finish, Hmm. but now he had no money for project B. And so he had raised money for project C to pray for project B. And you see how that just continues to grow and grow. And I mean, it really is a Christian kind of Ponzi scheme that he sets up and and he sells all these different Things and the the thing that he sells is a promise of a vacation, a one week vacation for life to Heritage USA uh, for a thousand dollars. What a deal! It's that's exactly what American evangelicals think. <laughs> they're just like, this sounds incredible, and it was. But there's only a certain number of hotel rooms and a certain number of weeks in a year, and time is tough. And so you could only house about twenty five thousand of these. But he sold sixty six thousand. Hmm. So he sold more than he could house. And so in that leads to some really serious uh, financial troubles. On top of that, um, the thing that really brings Baker uh, to the end is um, his sexual impropriety. In 1987, uh, he and PTL have a pretty dramatic fall from... Grace, when it comes out that uh, Baker had raped a woman named Jessica Hahn in 1980 and paid her $265,000 in hush money. And I think this instance, if you if you read the coverage or see the coverage of it then, I think versus kind of in our 2023 uh, mindset is um, very different. She was a secretary that worked at a church and went to go and meet Baker because he was this uh, faith leader uh, and she went with this pastor that she worked for um, and ended up um, being kind of this coordinated event between the two pastors to get her and Baker in a room uh, together that was just um, a truly awful event for her and really sent her life into a spiral. But it set up um, this moment that when that came to... The front uh, really brought uh, Jim Baker down, and as that kind of began to raise questions, people all of a sudden started looking at the finances. And so, this house of cards that he, that Jim and Tammy mm-hmm. Faye had kind of built, the Jessica Hahn affair is the one that kind of the first card to fall, yeah. and then everything else falls um, soon after that. And he's found guilty of 24 counts of fraud and conspiracy and sentenced to 45 years in prison. And so, um, and he is, he's just kind of one of these big evangelical leaders. There's several kind of in the mm-hmm. late eighties that cash in on this rising popularity and this rising tide, but you see a real fall from grace that leads to an interesting moment in that you would think at the 1980s would be a time of real decline uh, for evangelicals on yeah. the back end. Coming out of it, people like 
Jim Baker and then Jimmy Swagger and, and others that are have incredibly public platforms that mm-hmm. have these dramatic falls from grace. Narratively, you would think, and then the 1990s are going to be a real fall from right. there. Yeah. And it's actually the opposite. Uh, we're going to see how in the 1990s it becomes this age of evangelicalism where you see this real melding of American culture and American evangelicalism, and it reaches new heights. So in this episode, I think we see a lot speaking to our present moment. And as we get closer and closer to our present moment, it's easier to see a lot of these kind of connecting threads. And we'll kind of take them in in two parts. In the first part that we talked about with the election of Reagan and, and kind of uh, Dobson's role in that, I think it's important to think about the shift within evangelicalism that I think has just grown since then. Is it's not the first time that evangelical Christians have impacted politics or policy. We've talked about this in kind of different episodes here, from the abolition of slavery to the passing of prohibition uh, to getting one nation under God kind of inserted into uh, you know our, our nation's documents. And in, the, in those, right, Christians and evangelicals have been voting for a really long time. The difference in kind of what is new and unique in the election of Reagan in 1980 is having evangelicals align themselves specifically with one political party in the Republican Party, but also becoming a political voting bloc that has been recruited by politicians outside of the church. And as as we've kind of seen in our kind of current, you know, heightened political moment, that those lines can get blurred. And I think as we reflect on this, the question that we need to ask is, are, is our faith impacting our politics and that, that how we kind of root ourselves in our faith shape how we see and interact with the world, which it should do, or on the other side, are our politics shaping our faith? Are we allowing that to be kind of the, the barriers uh, there? And, and the answer to that question is obviously individual, but not easy to parse out there. But I think in this moment, again, of kind of analyzing this alignment, uh, I hopefully provides some space for us as people, us as a church, and then us as a part of a kind of a larger movement to consider our role in that and how we, again, shape our identity in, in both of those arenas. I think in the second one with the case of uh, Jim Baker and his downfall, I think it, he's easier to just kind of dismiss and just say, Yep, it is bad to have someone that's a money swindler and a rapist as a passer. I think we can all kind of head nod and be like, yep, that is something that we want to avoid. But I think if we, I mean, definitely take that negative and keep that as a negative, I think that's a positive always. But I think looking at him as one of the early kind of modern uh, examples of a celebrity pastor, someone that knows and is and is able to kind of read our cultural moment and attract a lot of people to him for doing that provides another, again, kind of set of questions, a, a mirror for us to, to look into and in that as we have more and more of the pastors uh, with more platforms and technology has given us those things, what does that mean for us and for our faith and for our community? Are we seeking out a community that challenges us? Are we seeking out a community that will uh, ask us hard questions and kind of push us to develop a deeper and a broader faith? Or are we seeking out People Are we seeking out faith leaders that just kind of echo what we want to hear and play and feed into our culture? And again, it's hard to resist that. Our cult- we are people in a cultural moment and like feeling those forces on our lives. Uh, but I think in the case of Jim Baker, and he is just one, there have been dozens and dozens and dozens uh, other and after him. Uh, but in that what does 
that mean for us to try and willingly uh, look for that type of leader in our life? And so in this moment, uh, of, again, our very recent past, I think we see some really dominating trends for American evangelicalism today and this emphasis that we see in churches both uh, on celebrity culture and celebrity preachers and and wanting to follow that, but then also uh, this influence of politics uh, in our churches. And I think uh, parsing those out and thinking about them on a deeper level is something that is definitely worth our time. Mm -hmm.